The following broadcast is released under a Creative Commons license. I believe in Jesus Christ, the only Son of God. I believe He lived and died, and that He rose again. I believe and trust in Him. Ascended into hell, Christ our living head will one day come again to judge the living and the dead. I believe and trust in Him. I will trust in my Redeemer, sing of His love. That lasts forever Know His hope And sure salvation I will trust in Him Though the world Falls around me I rest And know That He has found me Christ the rock Is my Welcome all to Pastor Yeshua. You've been listening to Creed by Richard Jensen from his album, Order of Service. By way of introduction, Pastor is an acrostic which stands for Preaching All Salvation Through One Redeemer. Our Redeemer, Yeshua, Jesus, is the Hebrew name for the Lord. It means Yahweh, the Lord, is salvation. Translated from Hebrew into the Greek language, the name Yeshua becomes Jesus. The English transliteration for Jesus is Jesus. This program deals with apologetics, questions on and about God, the Bible, and the Christian faith. I take questions and seek by Scripture to give answers and encouragement for everyone, including the tough-minded living in today's skeptical society. And now, let's join Pastor Yeshua. Welcome to Pastor Yeshua. In our last episode, I began responding to an online article which I stumbled across from a 30-something couple with a blog named Ash and Pre, entitled, 10 Controversial Questions About Christianity That You Wouldn't Dare Ask a Christian. Here, I continue to take up the dare and to answer the supposedly controversial questions presented using a correct biblical world and life view. Let's continue where we left off last time. Question number three. Quote, What's the point of praying or free will? Unquote. The author continues to give further clarification, saying, quote, What is the point in prayer if it's all part of God's plan? Or free will if it's all part of God's plan? Unquote. Let's take the question in two parts. Part A. 
Quote, what is the point in prayer if it's all part of God's plan? Unquote. Answer, simple. We know the overall plan of God, which is to reconcile his elect to himself for eternal fellowship and joy unspeakable. But none of us know the exact timing or the details of what his plan for our individual lives are now within the stream of the overall plan. Thus, prayer is manifold in purpose. It is ultimately there as a means of communication to petition God to change our hearts and our minds to be moved and conformed to His will. It is a request to be provided with those gifts which God desires to give us, and at times He waits until we ask, and his timing is right. It is there because God asks and desires our prayers to him, as any good earthly father desires communication with his children. We're not robots. We are created beings with whom God desires interaction and fellowship. Our prayers are not going to change the overall sovereign will of God contained in his word regarding creation, fall, redemption, and restoration of his creation. But prayer can bring our will and others' will into conformity with God's perfect will. Part B, quote, What is the point in free will if it's all part of God's plan? Unquote. Answer, two parts. One, it depends on what the quote-unquote it is that the author is referring to. And two, it depends on the definition and or existence of quote-unquote free will. Now, here, oftentimes, the straw man argument is that the quote-unquote it means that God has planned every single minute detail of every person's life down to the tiniest thought in action. Effectively, God has created wind-up robots who have no choice in what they think or they do. Further, despite this complete control by God, every person somehow has a free will to do what they want but they are unable to do it due to the programming and the finality of what has already been determined by God. Thus, there is a fatalism which man is unable to escape the prison of God's determined will. But this is not the case. Yes, God has determined and fixed his permissive and perfect will regarding creation, fall, redemption, and restoration, and the particulars which eventuate that. Further, God has and is entering into the stream of human history to make possible those things which man is incapable of doing due to our fallen state. But God is not controlling every minute thought and every minute deed and every minute decision that we make.
He knows what they will be, and he sees them because he's omniscient. But because he knows and sees them all does not imply that he causes them. So let's talk about a biblical explanation of quote-unquote it and the issue of quote-unquote free will. First, let's talk about quote-unquote God's plan. As stated, the Bible clearly articulates that God has sovereignly designed and created and is executing a finished plan regarding creation, fall, redemption, and restoration of all things. This plan cannot be altered, defeated, or stayed. Because God is all-seeing and all-knowing, i.e. omniscient, God is outside time and sees the beginning, the middle, and the end of all things in one view. But, again, seeing and knowing something does not imply that God is causing it. It is possible that God allows mankind to make objective decisions in life, such as what to wear, what to eat, where to go, who to marry, etc., and we can call that, a, that process a kind of quote-unquote free will. However, contrary to opinion, there are some realities and or things that we do not have the quote-unquote free will to choose, unquote. We cannot choose our gender. We cannot choose our skin color, our eye color. We cannot choose the seasons or the order of the planets. In regard to God, we cannot choose our basic nature, nor can we choose to overrule that which God sovereignly decrees by his will to do. So when people try to tell me that we have a quote-unquote free will, which supposedly God has to respect or bow to, I ask, what percentage of quote-unquote free will do you have regarding God? Is it 1%, 50%, 75%, or 100%? Whatever it is, keep in mind that whatever number you choose, God's sovereign will is now limited proportionally to the remaining 99%, 50%, 20%, or 0%. So, if the quote-unquote it above consists of the mere rudimentary decisions in life, then yes, you have the free will to make these decisions. Because God is omniscient, he sees and knows what that decision you're going to make is, and he sees the outcome. God's permissive will allows for this, but he does not necessarily cause it, and he definitely does not author it if it is evil in his eyes. This being said, according to Romans chapter 8, verses 28 through 31 again, God can and often does use, quote-unquote, all things, including our, quote-unquote, free will, our poor choices, and the outcomes to eventuate his perfect 
and sovereign will plan. So the point is that if there is free will, then we have to decide whether it is more important to have and exercise our free will in opposition and rebellion to God and thus be at enmity with God and ultimately cut myself off eternally by virtue of my free will choice or whether I choose to submit my will to God's will and have reconciliation and eternal life in the center of God's perfect peace and joy. Question number four, quote, do you believe God can change his mind, unquote? The author then gives an example saying, quote, if an angel come down with a tablet tomorrow that said Christianity 2.0, we're bringing back the kosher laws and hell has been given a 10-year maximum sentence, would you follow it, unquote? Answer, no to all of the above. Why? Numbers 23, 19 states, quote, God is not a man, so he does not lie. He is not human, so he does not change his mind. Has he ever spoken and failed to act? Has he ever promised and not carried it through? Unquote. And here, the entirety of God's word bears this out, that unlike any human, God is perfectly truthful and perfectly reliable. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 8 says this, quote, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever, unquote. In the Old Testament, in Exodus chapter 3, verse 14, God introduces himself to Moses saying, I am that I am. Here, the original Hebrew language and structure very clearly portrays God as one who is, one who exists forever and has no beginning and no end. God is an unchanging, eternal being. Because God is perfect in all of his attributes, he is incapable of changing his mind, because changing one's mind would imply that new information has surfaced. One has discovered that the current information on hand is incorrect. You are wrong about something, or you have made a bad decision. But none of these are possible for God because, again, God is all-knowing, omniscient, and he is incapable of error. As to the second question regarding following anyone, including an angel, who claims that God has changed his mind, again, the answer is no. Why? Galatians chapter 1 verses 8 and 9 preemptively warn God's people against this exact issue, saying, quote, But though we, or an angel from heaven, preach any other gospel unto you than that which we have preached unto you, 
let him be accursed. As we said before, so say I now again, if any man preach any other gospel unto you than that ye have received, let him be accursed, unquote. So, no, no Christian should follow anyone, including an angel, who claims to have Christianity 2.0, or another gospel, because God has clearly warned us not to. Question number five, quote, how do you know Christianity is the right faith, unquote? To elaborate, the author further asks, quote, how do you know you have the right faith? I'm sure Hindus halfway around the world feel it just as deeply as you do. Why would God condemn vast swaths of the population simply for being born in the wrong society, unquote? Answer, each person can honestly and earnestly examine the source documents for all religious faiths or beliefs, the internal evidences, the witness statements, the claims of the founders, and the evidence of their lives, as well as the independent historical and archaeological records. The various evidence and statements can then be measured according to logical consistency and veracity using accepted rules of exegesis and hermeneutics. Having done this, it is possible to determine which of the claims hold the overall greatest merit. Now, each quote-unquote faith has its own claims, and people have a right to place their trust in those claims as they see fit. This being said, they cannot all be true because each religion or faith has its founder and or adherents making claims and statements which are contradictory and mutually exclusive so they can all be wrong, or one can be right, but they cannot all be right. Now, the author goes on to talk about quote-unquote feelings as the basis of veracity. But feelings, no matter how deep they may be, are just that, feelings. Feelings are subjective, and they prove nothing. Feelings are only valid if the fact is that there is no ultimate reality or truth. But if there is an ultimate truth in reality, then my feelings or the consensus of the entire planet denying reality does nothing to change that reality. So, on the above basis of examining all available evidence regarding the various religions and or faiths, I would submit that God's Word, the Bible, carries a vast preponderance of evidence supporting the truth and reliability of the claims of the Bible and Christianity as the quote-unquote right faith. Now, as to the sub-question, quote, 
Why would God condemn vast swaths of the population simply for being born in the wrong society? Unquote? Answer, God doesn't condemn anyone based upon what society they're born in. God condemns people based upon their rebellion against him. He condemns them for denying Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, and or he condemns them for violating the general knowledge of God written universally within the human heart. Question number six, quote, Why did God create sinners, unquote? The author continues and elaborates, saying, quote, If God is all-knowing, therefore he knew when he created us, we would become sinners and the majority of people would go to hell. So, why did he create us, unquote? Answer, God didn't create sinners. He created people who he declared to be, quote, very good, unquote, i.e. Adam and Eve, with free will. God's perfect will was that Adam and Eve would maintain their truth and faith in God's covering grace and finished work, and their, their fellowship would continue for eternity. In order for that fellowship and mutual trust, faith, and love to be meaningful, it was necessary to give Adam and Eve true free will. True free will is only possible when there is a choice. Without choice, we have no free will, and we are robots. With robots, there is no sincere, meaningful trust, faith, or love. Therefore, the choice is trust God or trust that we are each able to be like God via our own knowledge of good and evil and our ability to carry it out on our own apart from God. Now, because God is eternal and omniscient, God knew what he was doing and he knew why he was doing it. He knew the choice, and he knew the choices Adam and Eve would make. Like any honest father, God told Adam and Eve what the reality and consequences of their choice would be. In this case, if they chose to abandon and rebel against him, the consequence was death, because since God is the only source of life, joy, fellowship, peace, etc., once God is removed and denied, all that is left is death and eternity, separated from God, and all that is good, which is the definition and reality of hell. So, yes, God knew what would happen. God knew people would rebel against him, and thus, by extension, some people, not God, would choose and merit hell. But again, just because God knows something does not mean that he causes it. Insofar as the question, quote, why did God create us, unquote, well, let's ask the average mother or father, why did you create children knowing that some will seek or will do things that will hurt themselves or others? Well, the answer is the same. 
we want to experience the joy and the love of those children who will choose to love us in return and to have fellowship with them. It would be shallow and empty indeed to hide in a cave and refuse to have any children simply because one or any number of them will do evil. We don't focus on that. We focus on the good, and we are not responsible for the children who choose evil. Now, this analogy is superficial at some point and flawed because God is going to reward the righteous, and he's going to punish the evil, and he's going to do it perfectly. But if God creates nobody then there will be no one to reward and no one to punish. If God creates and forces only righteousness, then we are robots and there is no reward because there is no meaningful love, trust, or faith to reward. In the end, this is a classic red herring fallacy created by those who see themselves and or man as being a better judge of fairness than God. They want a 100% positive outcome for everyone, regardless of what they have done or failed to do and the choices that they make. They see it as unfair of God that anyone goes to hell. But the truth is that according to God's perspective, based upon what we have merited and what is quote-unquote fair, we should each and every one go to hell. The miracle is that by God's goodness, grace, and mercy, he, for his own reason, saves some out of hell when none of us deserve it. For the time being, this concludes this episode. Please join me again for part three. Now, if you have any questions about God, the Bible, or the Christian faith, I encourage you to send me an email at pastor underscore Yeshua at yahoo.com. That's P-A-S-T-O-R underscore Y-E-S-H-U-A at yahoo.com. Thank you for listening. Trust in